Hello and welcome to the game World Cup Daily from The Times. I'm Natalie Sawyer and thank you for joining us. We're here every match day of the World Cup, podcasting after 10 o'clock UK time every night. In the studio with me, it's a pleasure to be joined by The Times columnist Giles Smith. Hello, Giles. Hello, Natalie. Picture in just a moment. Uh, we won't just be talking about football with Giles. There's also another huge battle that rages during this World Cup and every World Cup the BBC versus ITV. In Moscow, on Cristiano Watch, the great Gab Marcotti and three teams are eliminated. Disappointment for Morocco, Saudi Arabia and Egypt. Shortly, we'll be talking Spain, who secure their first victory of this World Cup and their first win under Fernando Hierro. But let's start with an update from the England camp. The England team very much enjoying a rare day off in Russia ahead of that second group match against Panama on Sunday. The Times writer Paul Joyce is with the camp. And Paul, we start with some breaking news, and injury news, not concerning a player, thankfully, but the manager. Yeah, strange old day, really. I didn't think we'd be, be speaking about uh, injury to the manager this morning when we woke up. But yeah, Gareth Southgate dislocated his shoulder today. Um, the team and the squad were... We're given a day off. Some of the players went into St. Petersburg um, just for a change of scenery. He went on a run, slipped over. Um, the impact was on his right side, and he called for help from the England team doctor and has dislocated his shoulder. Um, went to St. Petersburg for, for treatment. And, yeah, he's going to be in a sling for a few weeks, I would imagine. So no jumping for joy if we score on <laughs> on Sunday. Well, I was going to say he can't over celebrate now, but I'm sure he'll be hoping uh, by the time England lift the World Cup, he'll be recovered to lift it. <laughs> yeah, that must be a target for him now. But yeah, one of the more unusual sort of features of of the of England's time in in the Pino so far. It was sort of quite low key for the first week, but obviously now with with Gareth's misfortune and the sort of doubts over Deli Ali's fitness there's one or two issues starting to engulf England um, ahead of that Panama game on Sunday. Mm. I mean it's interesting though Southgate sort of, sort of seemed I want to say jovial about about the problem because he said he was on for a record 10k time. Yeah I think he's I mean he obviously made the point that it's better to be him than one of his players I think one of the things that stands out about his sort of leadership, not just while we've been here in Russia and in the build-up, but over time has been how he sort of puts the right emphasis on on, on the important things and it won't affect the, the team. And I'm sure there were a few sort of amusing comments from the players when they came across him later on today because they held a team meeting this, this evening just to go over the first bits of the Panama game. So I think the focus will obviously be a lot of focus on him at training tomorrow but then it swiftly moves on. Giles this isn't the first time an England member of staff has been injured on World Cup duty is it? No I don't know whether it's too soon to talk about the the curse but um, uh, last time out there was Gary Lewin who of course um, stood on a water bottle and turned his ankle. He was celebrating Daniel Sturridge's equaliser against Italy I think and uh, and put himself out for the rest of the tournament. I've got to say we, we were told before the tournament, to, to worry about uh, the possibility of rabies in the Rapino woodlands and um, oh. infected wildlife that uh, were going to be a threat to the England squad. And um, But it turns out tree roots, in <laughs> fact. <laughs> cursed tree roots. Yeah. Um, Paul, you, you sort of alluded to, to Delhi Ali, and, and obviously he is the biggest concern on the pitch for England. Is there any update on him? 
Well, he's tweeted tonight saying that um, he's hopeful that to be back in training in the next few days. I don't think the injury's too serious, but it's just obviously it's the timing in tournaments. You know, do you want to risk it against Panama with the the all important game against Belgium? four days later if you aggravate anything in the short term then you know with that type of injury um, a thigh injury you, you, you're looking at maybe your tournament being over so I think he will take a very sort of cautious approach with his, his fitness um, I wouldn't expect him to be training tomorrow and yeah then it, it moves on to, to who comes in really in his in his place yeah, and you sort of suggested that could be Ruben Loftus Cheek, and you've spoken to him uh, earlier on. And he had some words to say about his personal future at Chelsea, didn't he? Yeah, I think he's just sort. Of, he was just being asked the question, which he always gets asked. You know, what's going to happen next season? Um, and to a large extent, it, it that that's still unknown, really, because the manager we don't know. You know, who the manager is going to be next season at Chelsea. But I think what he's saying is that it's imperative for him to be playing games next season. He went on loan it last season, obviously, to Crystal Palace and I think played 25 games there. Showed the promise that everybody has sort of always felt that he's had. And, it, you know, it's just not conducive to his career to, to go back to or find himself next season on the sidelines for long periods. He needs to kick on from what, you know, everybody hopes will be a good tournament. He showed in, in flashes on Monday when he came on for that brief period that he's all about power and pace and taking opponents on and beating players. And, you know, once the tournament's out of the way, he obviously faces a, a big decision because, um, you know, we need to be playing football regularly next season. Um, he's a player that, that Gareth Southgate really likes and, and would want to build England around in the future. And remaining at Chelsea and, and not playing just doesn't seem to be an option. Uh, Roy Hodgson is a big fan of him. Uh, you'd imagine Crystal Palace would love the chance to re-sign him, but if he continues to impress at this World Cup, this could be a real shot window for him, couldn't it? Yeah, I think you're right. I think Roy Roy would like to bring him back. The, the difficulty will be that if he does well out here, starting games and keep you know maybe even keeping his place, you wonder what what that will do to his price tag. Um, and then that has implications for the sorts of teams that can buy him. So there's a lot to be decided on his future in the next few weeks and, and how he does in these next games, starting with Panama, will we'll have a heavy bearing on that. The Game. World Cup Daily from The Times with Natalie Sawyer. You can hear live commentary of all of Thursday's games on Talk Sport, including Denmark taking on Australia at 1 o'clock, France versus Peru at 4, and the huge clash between Argentina and Croatia live from 7 o'clock on Talk Sport. Spain have beaten Iran to go top of Group B, and Gab Marcotti joins us now. And Gab, Diego Costa with the goal in Kazan, although he probably knew very little about it. Yeah, he himself came out afterwards, talked about uh, how he was uh, he was certainly fortunate with the uh, I guess the double deflection is what you'd call it, and uh, helping Spain break down a really 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 tough uh, Iran side. It's actually um, I don't know how many people know this, but Iran lost after twenty after a streak of twenty three consecutive competitive games without defeat, which I believe is. It's one of the longest streaks ever, and it's certainly the longest streak by a non-European side. 
that's very impressive. And you mentioned how uh, you know Spain really had to work hard uh, for their win because Iran was so well defensively organised under Carlos Quiroz. They really did frustrate Spain, particularly in that first half. Yeah, and look, it's, I know people are going to look at it and be like, oh, well, all they did was go and park the bus and, you know, it's kind of thing Mourinho would do. But I think we need to appreciate, especially with some of these smaller uh, teams in the World Cup, you know, small and inverted commas, that Iran doesn't play like this all the time. So they're the best team in Asia by going out and attacking other teams and, you know, being the big boys there. And then they get to the World Cup and they got obviously that good result against uh, Morocco in the opener, and they have to totally change the way they play by becoming uh, such a defensive side, and you know, it nearly worked for them. It nearly worked, but they won't make many friends, will they, with their sort of play acting and time wasting? Well, look, I mean, come on, it's it's the World Cup, right? We're we, <laughs> we're sort of used to this sort of thing. I mean, uh, it's something that I think most pe- most teams will get up to, and, and I'll tell you what, if there's one team that. I think a lot of people would say, you know, it's okay to do it against. It's uh, probably Spain, given the given the presence of uh, Sergio Ramos and Diego Costa in the Spain side. No, mm. you might have a point there, uh, Gab. But uh, they were denied around a famous equaliser inside the last half an hour, an offside uh, decision which was correct, uh, corrected by VAR. How have you felt VAR has been used in this tournament, Gab? I think VAR has worked exceptionally well thus far. And look, there's always going to be there's always going to be decisions that you know people are going to moan about. They're going to complain that it takes too long. I think you know on this occasion it was quite a long stop because they just simply because of the dynamic of the play, right? So there was the the initial offside um, directly off the free kick, which turned out that he was onside, and then there was uh, obviously the the subsequent one. So you know I, I think World Cup games are are so important that if we have to spend an extra 10, 20, 30 seconds, even a minute waiting for the correct decision, personally, I think it's worth it. And oh, somebody's going to bring up the Harry Kane decision. And look, it's not as if things are going to be perfect, but you know what we are seeing is is a really really big improvement and uh and yeah i i think so far so good mm. i mean it is still in its infancy but uh, giles let's go back on to diego costa such a character he is someone that we want to see remain at this world cup for a little bit longer don't we absolutely um he's just a sort of complete entertainment package um <laughs> and and you watch him in terms of things like facial expressions and uh his kind of involvement that sense you have that you're never quite sure what he might do next um, people were saying that VAR was going to be very difficult for Diego Costa. Might ruin his tournament. Hasn't done so far. Uh, Gab, I just want to ask you, is uh, Hierro Spain the one we would have seen under Julian Lopetegui? Yeah, it's it's interesting because, um, you know, Hierro came out and he said, look, I'm not going to change a thing. You know, we've been working towards this for, for two years. Um, Sergio Ramos said, Julian Lopetegui will be with us no matter what. Personally, I don't think there's much of a difference between the Spain team and, uh, and certainly, you know, what we saw in the qualifiers. And, you know, I mean, since they were, in, uh, they were in Italy's qualifying group, I actually got to see uh, a lot of Spain, you know, um, right up until Italy decided not to go to the World Cup so they could let somebody else have a go. It's very um, kind, very kind so, of them. So, you know, it was, yeah. Um, certainly tactically in terms of ethos, in terms of want to play, it's the same thing. Um, on a man-manager level, I think it's going to probably be a little bit different simply because 
you know, Seattle is a different character, but, you know, Fernando Seattle is a national icon in Spain. You know, he's a guy with 89 caps, the guy who's won three Champions League titles, the guy who was there and was sporting director when they won the, the Euros and the World Cup. You know, in terms of charisma, in terms of gravitas, he's sort of like, he's sort of like is to Spain what Trevor Brooking is to West Ham fans. One thing we noticed on, on the coverage, Giles, <laughs> is that the noise of the Vuvuzelas appear to be back. They weren't particularly liked at the 2010 World Cup in South Africa, but they are back. Uh, and they're big with Iran, it feels like. They, yeah, they seem to be back with Iran, but with Iran only. Um, <laughs> I thought the football family had decided to turn its back on the Vuvuzela after South Africa. And um, I mean, to the point of banning them, actually, from grounds. Um, but Gab, I, I mean, am I right? I, I, I think it's only the Iranian fans that um, are making that noise. It's a limited outbreak. Or do we have to fear something broader? I, I, I haven't heard Vuvuzela at other games just yet. I have to say, for me, I don't, I don't really mind it. You know, I mean, it's a couple hours out of my life while I watch a football match, hearing an annoying sound. Uh, if the sound of vuvuzelas were to follow me to bed while while I go to sleep, or or in the shower, or over breakfast, then yeah, I'd have a serious problem with it. But you know, as long as it's contained, I can put up with it. Bit of folklore every four years, why not? Morocco became the first team to be eliminated from the World Cup after their second defeat in a row at the hands this time of Portugal. And it was, you know who, Cristiano Ronaldo who got the goal very early on in this one. And with it, Ronaldo becomes the all-time European goalscorer in international football with 85 goals. Gab, that is some achievement. It's incredible. Um, It's incredible, I think, also when you consider, and this is what kind of spooks you, is He's second place overall. He's just passed, of course, uh, Ferenc Pushkash. The all-time leading goal scorer is, uh, is actually an Iranian, Ali Dai, who has 109. Now, you would think, like, that's 24 more than, than Cristiano. There's no way it can happen. But the creepy thing is, you watch Cristiano, and he's kind of like the bionic man, and he's 33 years old, and you ask yourself, is he capable of scoring 24 goals between now and when he hangs up his boots? And... You probably wouldn't bet against him, especially especially given the way European qualifying is, where you know you're pretty much guaranteed, you know, one probably more often two Muppet sides uh, in every qualifying cycle, plus maybe the odd friendly, and you figure, why not? Uh, you of course were in Moscow. You were watching Portugal, Morocco, and Ronaldo has achieved almost everything there is to achieve in football. But two things have eluded him. He hasn't won the Golden Boot at a World Cup, and of course he hasn't won the World Cup. So could he, do you think, Gabba, be about to break one or maybe both of those ducks? Winning the World Cup, I think, is a stretch. Portugal were really, really poor today. Uh, Fernando Santos, their their manager, came out afterwards. He said, you know, it was an unfair result. Um, Morocco really dominated them. And uh, so, you know, once once you look at it from that perspective, you realise that this Portuguese size... They're not that good right now. They've kind of done it with smoke, smoke and mirrors. They're limited in some ways. They have this tremendous team spirit. Um, things often get frantic. And, you know, you, can, you sometimes have Cristiano to save the day. But, but that's a really big ask for him to do it with the supporting cast the way it is now, with players like Bernardo Silva, who we know can do better, for example, um, really not producing. 
Yeah, I remember in our preview podcast, we mentioned the ageing defence. And let's talk about one of those, Pepe, who uh, collapsed to the ground after a strong pat on the back, it has to be said. Uh, Could or should he face retrospective action for feigning injury, Gab? Um, No, I I, I don't think in a situation like that, I don't think it's going to happen. Morocco now out of the World Cup. It's not something that necessarily you know, uh, impacted the game. They like to try to avoid those situations. But he's certainly doing himself no favor. And I'll tell you what, if you think back to uh, the opener against Spain, I think it was his reputation that also prompted the referee, you know, to, to let the Diego Costa goal uh, stand. You know, given, you know, he gets nudged in the, ta- in the chest and goes down holding his face, you know, maybe a different player might have been, might have been treated differently. Another sort of remarkable story that's emerged from this World Cup concerns Watford's Norden Amrabat. And now, he appeared from Morocco wearing a scrum cap five days after being diagnosed with a concussion, contrary to the world governing body's guidelines. The guidelines by FIFA said they need six days rest, and they are demanding an explanation as to why he was selected. But Amrabat admits he doesn't remember the first game, but played... Uh, against Portugal wearing a scrum cap, discarded it as he got too hot and then was asked afterwards why he played and he said simply, I am my own doctor. What do you make of that? I mean, we understand, of course, the World Cup is the pinnacle of a player's career, but that is surely a step too far playing in that game. Yeah, I mean, I think in principle I agree with you. The reality is as long as you have team doctors who are paid by FAs, these situations, I think to some degree we're going to be in, in, in danger of them happening. I don't even know if, I mean, is there any scientific advice that his scrum cap would have necessarily protected him? And by the same token, if he says, you know what, I'm taking my scrum cap off, it's been, it's been five days, I am happy to risk permanent brain damage and serious injury, you know, and I'm making the decision as a fully, uh, you know, as, as an adult. You know, it's kind of different than somebody who, well, we saw at the last World Cup, for example, in Uruguay, where the guy got, you know, appeared clearly concussed and played on. You know, five days have passed. Presumably five days while he's still at risk, it's enough time for him to make a decision about whether he wants to go and take these chances. And you can say he's under undue pressure or whatever, and these are very bad decisions to take. But, but you know, he's an adult, right? That's right. And he can make up his own mind, I suppose. But the the way Group B looks as it stands is so intriguing. Of course, we know Morocco are out, but Portugal, Spain and Iran all have a chance of progressing. Uh, Portugal and Spain level on points with an identical goal difference. Spain atop, having received fewer yellow cards. Iran just a point further back on three. And What's happening on Monday night is that Spain play Morocco in Kaliningrad. Uh, Portugal face Iran in Saransk. Uh, top spot very much up for grabs. Iran know that they have to beat Portugal to reach the knockout stages for the first time in their history. Gab, what is going to happen? I mean, I, I think Spain are very much in the uh, in the driving seat uh, at, at this stage. Obviously, there's uh, Morocco already out. You're not very good at getting draws, but obviously, given the circumstances, a draw is not going to be enough for them. So... For me, at least, I think I have Portugal and Spain going through. The Game. World Cup Daily from The Times with Natalie Sawyer. We'll be giving you a Times trivia teaser question every day on every podcast as provided by the wonderful Bill Edgar. 
Last time out, we asked you, which decade featured two World Cups in which no semi-finals were played? The answer was the 1970s, in 1974 and 1978, in fact. A second group stage led directly to the final. Our teaser today, who is the only player to have scored a higher number of goals than his shirt number at a World Cup tournament? Tune in to our next podcast to find out the answer. We are through match day seven at this World Cup and it's about time we discussed how it's been covered on TV here. And uh, Giles, we've got to start, first of all, with ITV set in Russia. It got everyone talking. Uh, it's extremely grandiose, would you say? It's the greatest uh, punditry set that's ever been built, I think. And no one's ever attempted anything as ambitious as this. Um, actually, ITV have got a bit of form with grandiose sets. They've been going at it for a while. I don't know if you remember, but in 2014, when they were in Brazil, they had a room in the media centre, same as everybody else, but they chose actually to go out on the beach mm. and set, the, set their desk up out there and um, on a platform with waves kind of running in. And um, we were treated to the pleasure of Adrian Charles's knees, which we saw most days in his shorts. Um, and he I think they were there. just showing off, weren't they, about the weather? I think, that, well, they were obviously very pleased to be there. And it was, it was, it was actually great fun. It was a really mm. good idea. I mean, um, uh, and then they, t they, they moved on from that in France for the European Championships last time, two years ago. Again, they could have been in the media centre with everybody else, but they seemed to secure themselves this platform up on the roof. Um, so they were, again, you know, al fresco, and they had a ridiculous table which seemed to have part of the Eiffel Tower, you know, holding it up, um, the sort of famous Eiffel table that they all sat around, which of course Slavin Bilic famously climbed on in a moment of excitement, <laughs> um, and it proved to take his weight, which was quite handy. <laughs> Very much so. Um, so they've been building up to it, but this time they've just gone absolutely wild. I, I, I don't expect to see a Pundry studio like it ever again. You know, it's sort of part... Russian cathedral, it's got this cupola domed roof, it's got kind of faded paintings on the walls that seem to be ancient and yet are of Diego um, Maradona um, and then down below that on the ground floor as it were there's a sort of electric wall which is like a sort of giant lava lamp which actually looks a bit like a glass of lager if you look so through squinted eyes at it um, I mean, it's magnificent. It's uh, this cross between something very, very Russian and kind of Christmas in the Arndale Centre. Um, amazing. Yeah. And by, by comparison, the BBC studio is very, very modest. The BBC seemed to have bought into the whole Gareth Southgate keep it calm um, yes. vibe with their studio. Um, it's very simple. It looks like a train carriage, in fact. It's a train carriage window. Mm. Um, it looks like some train out of Houston that's mysteriously got held up in Moscow Red Square. I mean, beautiful view outside, but nothing much going on inside. And um, it's funny, but that, that sort of immediate impression is you think, well, I, actually, ITV are having a lot of fun. Um, mm. And the BBC have to work a little bit harder to look like they're having a lot of fun in their own context. OK, so I'll say maybe, what, 1-0 to ITV on that one. I definitely give it to them, and I think probably give it to them forever. On that. <laughs> I don't, can't see anybody building a set that's better than that. Yeah, so they've gone the extra mile, and they've gone the extra mile as well by the fact that they've got four pundits, and the BBC have got three. Let's not forget Ian Wright's bright shirts as well. Uh, four pundits, is that too much? Yeah, now that's, I, that possibly backfired on them slightly, I think. Um, uh, there was a, 
uh, one match where they came at half time to the to the four of them and they never got around to talking to Ian Wright. I mean that might have been something personal to do with the shirt they just took against him. <laughs> they are um, very bright. They, yeah, they are. I mean, he's working through the wardrobe and the others aren't going with him on it either, which is slightly, um, which is quite funny to see. It's as if he's the only one who's got that particular invitation. Um, <laughs> everybody else is wearing white or pale blue, but Ian Wright consistently Just working through out. the bright ones standing out and great I, I really like that um, but the four of them there's just sort of too many of them to talk it's, it's pretty cramped in, in those half time slots especially with the ab breaks whereas the BBC's more modern three across the back um, as introduced by Antonio Conte um, <laughs> is, seems to serve them well I mean everybody gets a bit of a crack and of course they're not competing with ab breaks mm. either so they've all got a bit more time uh, you mentioned Slaven Bilic, who was arguably the star pundit of Euro 2016. Uh, how do you think he's performing this time around? I think he's great. I, I like the way that he reaches out to the other pundits. And, uh, you know, he's very touchy-feely. He thinks it's a contact sport for him, which is good. Um, that doesn't seem to appeal to Roy Keane, who doesn't <laughs> seem to want to be touched. And notice how Roy Keane stares fixedly ahead and doesn't look at either of the pundits on his left. He will just about deign to look at the presenter but um, he's in his own zone but Billich, I, I think he's magnificent um, he seems to make the others laugh uh, for reasons that he's not quite clear about perhaps but I think he's he's living up to the to the standards that he set for himself in the in the European Championships last time I remember he, he, he needs to climb on the table at some point of course to of course. bring it all home yes uh, I do remember at one point he was asked a, a question about VAR and his response was simply, I don't care. I don't care, Which yeah. was brilliant. Yeah, it was which Just was honest and refreshing. <laughs> uh, you know, we can't not discuss Mark Lawrence and he is probably Marmite. That's the best way to describe him. Well, some people quite like Marmite. Though. <laughs> I, I love Marmite. Uh, not to say I love Mark Lawrence and I'm not saying I do or don't love Mark Lawrence, but he is always one of the top trends on Twitter when he is uh, co-commentating. He has what a grumpy persona, doesn't he? Where do you where do you stand on Laura? Well, I, I actually think you know it's a broad church, and I I think there's room for someone like Laura. He is very very old school in the sense that he seems to just kind of turn up, and uh, and he doesn't seem particularly keen on research. I might be doing him a major. Uh, uh, injustice there but I did hear him the other day ask what the nationality of the referee was and you sort of think well you know it's probably on a piece of paper in front of him if he wants to find that out but he just doesn't feel he needs to and a lot of the time he's miserable and there's a lot of misery in following football and I think he sort of, sort of speaks to that um, I think there's room for him and um, I, I'm often quite grateful for that kind of persistent grumpiness in the face of this festival of football there was a brilliant moment the other day where he he was actually trying to say how much he enjoyed a Kevin De Bruyne pass and um, he said he could watch that forever because he'd never get sick and tired of watching that and he thought it was brilliant most people say they'd never get tired of watching it but Lauro would absolutely say he'd never get sick and tired of watching it it's almost as if he was already beginning to be sick and tired of it um, but he's he's a legend and uh, I think there's room uh, the BBC, of course, have Gary Lineker up front and then their three for the uh, Tunisia game when England played them was uh, Shira Lampard and Ferdinand. 21 million people tuned in to watch that. That is staggering. It is. It just shows you that, um, you know, England at a World Cup pulls people to to the sofa uh, in, in a way that very little can be said to, you know, 21 million is... 
those are the sort of audiences that you look back and think television will never get again. You know, people talk about only fools and horses at Christmas and, the, you know, the Morecambe and Wise Christmas shows in the past, those great things that would draw people in in that exactly that quantity, 21, 22 million. And everyone says, well, that's over. But actually, it's not if you put England in a World Cup and and throw it at people on the BBC, they turn up. Mm, they certainly did. Uh, and each side, talking of new pundits, have female pundits at this uh, World Cup for the first time. The recently retired Alex Scott is at the BBC and the Juventus striker Eni Aluko is out there working for ITV. A great addition? I think they're both really good additions. I mean, the, the, the obvious thing to say is that this should have happened a while ago. And the other obvious thing to say is, is, it, is it's new. And uh, so people are kind of going to bridle about it. And you, you see that definitely on social media. People, you know, and you see it also even rather disappointingly in the reaction of Patrice Evra, who had that scene with Enia Luca where he applauded her. Uh, for, you know, and it was just sort of wince-inducing to watch. And you, But the thing is, it's going to be like this. Um, and you have to assume that uh, this is just a stage. In two or three years' time, these people will still be, you know, women will still be talking on football shows, but no one will be talking about the fact that they're women. They'll just be talking about what they're saying. And I guess we just have to get through this stage. Mm, um, yeah. Changing people's opinions is yeah. what needs to be done. And unfortunately, the same could be said for, for Vicky Sparks, who became the BBC's first female commentator at a World Cup. Uh, again, great to see the BBC doing something different but unfortunately, a lot of negativity. But she, she did a grand job. She did. And it's not, you know, I don't know what the argument is against this. Like, this is some kind of um, specifically male thing or specific skill set that only men. I mean, it's just biz- bizarre to be talking like that in, in, in 2018. Women watch football, women talk about football, especially a television audience that's made up of women as well as men. My 14-year-old daughter passed through the room while Vicky was doing her, her commentary. And I asked her if, if she noticed anything different about what, what was you know going on and she had to stand in front of the screen for quite a long time before she did and she said oh is that a woman commentating eventually and it, it occurred to her eventually that that was different from something that she'd heard before but I think it blends in more naturally than the people reacting to it badly on social media are, mm. are allowing. Well, let's let's hope the new generation are perfectly accepting of it all because, as, as we were saying, Vicky Sparks did a very good job and commentary is so very, very hard. Um, just finally, we, we mentioned it was 1-0 to ITV because of their set. Overall, with how things are going, what's the scoreline going to be? I think probably I'm going to favour the BBC coverage. In the I like Lineker enormously. Um, I also think Frank Lampard is a terribly good pundit. Mm. I probably prefer Guy Mowbray as a commentator to many of the commentators that uh, are on ITV. I just think they have the edge in a few key departments, but it's a very close thing. So 2-1? We'll call it 3-2. ITV could turn it around. They could turn it around. (laughs) There's a long way to go. Uruguay beat Saudi Arabia in Rostov to book their place in the round of 16. And the result also means Russia are through as well, with Saudi Arabia and Egypt exiting. Uh, Giles, from an entertainment standpoint, we want to see Luis Suarez staying at this World Cup, don't we? Definitely. He's he's one of those players you you tune in excitedly to see. You know, he's, he comes bundled up with all that history, um, the destruction of 
England in 2014, um, the eating people. Uh, so, you know, plus, of course, he's very likely to score goals and um, normally impressive goals as well. So, yeah, definitely would be would be a shame to lose him. We, don't, we want him into the knockout stages. <laughs> Sorry, I'm still thinking about Luis Suarez eating people. Um, it's not a pleasant thought, really. Well, of course, Russia and Uruguay face each other on Monday afternoon to determine who will top Group A. Now, as for Group D, Argentina versus Croatia, a win vital for Argentina to avoid going into what would be a final nervy game against Nigeria. Lionel Messi is looking to make amends, Giles, and he's always box office. He always delivers, perhaps not yet, but normally does. Yeah, you've got to hope he's going to at some point. I feel like, you know, this he's getting lumped together all the time in the comparisons with Cristiano Ronaldo, and um, which is a bit unnecessary because we can have them both, um, but um, inevitable at the same time. And, and I guess he failed that first test of of following up the Ronaldo hat-trick um, with, a, with a performance that in the first game and missing the penalty so he's he's got it to, to he's got it to do to to get back in but the first time he was on ITV and this time he's on BBC so maybe that'll make the difference that could be the difference you're quite right there have been flash floods and thunderstorms in Nizhny where that game will be played some locals had to be rescued as the waters rose quickly so we wait and see if that has any effect on the pitch on Thursday night uh, in contrast after their opening 2-0 win over Nigeria any positive result for Croatia will put them within touching distance of the knockout rounds. That's it for now. Many thanks to my guests, Giles Smith, Gab Marcotti and Paul Joyce. Subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times to enjoy award-winning journalism online and on your smartphone or tablet. For a limited time only, it is just a pound a month for your first three months. Search The Times sale for more information. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast supplier. We'll be back on Thursday in the company of Alison Rudd and Matt Dickinson. See you then. The Game is brought to you by The Times. For more information and more podcasts from The Times, head to thetimes.co.uk. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.